Father, this is a precious and beautiful word that you bring through your prophet Isaiah. And um, I ask that it would speak to our own hearts this morning. Um, Well, this is the kind of word that uh, meets us in places of pain um, and does healing work. And I pray that it would do that work uh, in each of us this morning. We all have um, places of pain in our hearts. Um, Please come, Holy Spirit. Despite uh, my own inadequacy as a speaker, despite our own inability to meet together right now as a community, would you just overcome all of the obstacles, despite my bad internet, uh, would you just overcome uh, the obstacles and, um, and do your work, because we cry out to you for health and healing in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so um, I'm going to show you another picture here. I'm sure you recognize this. Uh, so in the last week of Jesus's life, he spent a lot of time here in the temple, um, in Jerusalem. And, uh, this is a reconstruction, but, uh, it's based on a lot of archeology. span The temple probably looked a good deal like this. Um, and you know, it was a vitally important, uh, place for the Jewish people. It was right at the center of their national identity. This was kind of their national monument. Um, and it was also, of course, at the center of their religious identity. Um, and so the people of Israel would come from all over the country to the temple three times a year for the great feasts. Um, but we remember that very few people actually got to go inside. So, uh, you know, in normal times, you can still go inside the Washington Monument and uh, climb to the top. I don't know if you still can after 9-11, but in normal times, you could have... Um, and uh, but if you think about this, this uh, center of worship, if you look at these high walls and kind of battlements all around it, um, in a sense, these walls were to distinguish between who could go in. So I think I've shown this before, um, but this is a plan of the temple. And uh, if you were a Gentile, no matter how God fearing you were, you could only enter the temple as far as the orange section, the court of Gentiles outside. And actually, if you were diseased or if you had a disability, um, you couldn't even come in that close. Uh, then if you were a Jewish woman, you could go a little bit further. You could enter the, the pink court right there, the court of women, uh, which got you a bit closer to the temple. But only Jewish men could go in through the Nicanor Gate and get into the actual courtyard where the temple stood. So ordinary Jewish men could stand in the court of Israelites in that sort of light blue section. Then priests could get up closer. They could get around the temple itself in the court of priests, that sky blue section. So only the priests, you had to be a priest to actually even touch the outside of the temple walls. And then you had to be assigned duties in the temple as a priest to even go inside, which is that indigo section. And then you remember that deep in the middle, that uh, purple section with an M on the, on the plan, that's the Holy of Holies. And you remember that only one man, the high priest, could ever go inside there only once a year on Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement. All right, so um, this is like, it's very hierarchical structure. You could even say exclusive structure of the temple. And we remember that this one, wasn't Maki. Um, it was actually designed by God way back in Exodus uh, in the tabernacle for the sake of holiness. This rings within rings, courts within courts. Um, but we also remember that this whole structure was also destroyed by God. Uh, it was destroyed at the instant that Jesus died when God ripped the, the curtain of the temple in two from top to bottom. 
he opened up the Holy of Holies, in fact, to everybody. So now this temple plan that we see here, it doesn't stand anymore. It no longer stands physically in Jerusalem and the system of it no longer stands theologically either. But I, here's what I wonder. I wonder to what extent things feel a bit like this sometimes within the church today. So here's what I want to ask you guys. Do you ever feel personally like you're only allowed into God's house and into God's presence some of the way? You're like thus far and no further. Like either God or his people are sort of holding you at arm's length. And maybe that's because you feel like there's something wrong with you, something wrong inside you either some ill health or some disability in your body or mind that disqualifies you. And there's a wall that says you can't come in any further than this. Or perhaps it's because you feel like a foreigner with some kind of cultural distance between you and your worshiping community or some kind of language gap. Um, or perhaps it's because you're a woman and you can only come in as far as the court of women. Or maybe because you have same-sex attraction and that makes you feel different and like you don't belong in the center of things. You don't belong right near to God and his throne. Or maybe just it's singleness in a community culture that prefers and promotes marriage. Or maybe do you feel stuck on the periphery because you're not ordained, as if it's still the case that the, the real center of the action is for the priests uh, only the priests can go into the Holy of Holies and come to the throne of God. Now, it's understandable that you feel that way, but that's like precisely the idea that I want to challenge this morning because the word of God in Isaiah 56 tells such a different story. So we'll get done with these slides here. All right. Um, so if you can read your Bible, um, find uh, Isaiah chapter 56 now, the part that Stephanie read for us. Isaiah 56. Um, and this is uh, God's word to eunuchs. We're going to focus on the eunuchs uh, particularly um, because the word to eunuchs turns out to be a word of God to everyone who feels stuck on the outside. You know, it's like one of these places where if God can elevate the most excluded person, he could at the same, in the same breath elevate everybody together. Um, now, we remember that uh, in the New Testament, we meet one eunuch. We meet the Ethiopian eunuch, right, who um, Philip shares the gospel with uh, as he's returning home to Ethiopia after one of the great feasts. So he just come to the temple and he was heading home. And uh, Philip meets him as he's reading from the scroll of Isaiah, right? And he's reading chapter 53 at the time. And Philip shares the gospel of Jesus with him, baptizes him. And I love to imagine that that Ethiopian eunuch climbed back aboard his chariot and carried on his journey and opened up Isaiah again at the same place and kept on reading. Because if he'd kept on reading, he would have arrived almost immediately at Isaiah chapter 56 and come to the only place in the whole Old Testament that addresses eunuchs directly, that gives them a prophecy of hope for eunuchs. And he would have begun his Christian life with these words. For thus says the Lord to the eunuchs who keep my Sabbaths, who choose the things that please me and hold fast to my covenant, I will give in my house and within my walls a monument and a name better than sons and daughters. I will give them an everlasting name which shall not be cut off. And if that was true, if he did keep reading and read those words, we can only imagine how like personally met he would have felt by the Lord and how much those words would have ministered to his pain. Because these verses are kind of like a love letter from God 
to Unix and by extension to everyone who is the most downtrodden and ruined and excluded people in the world. Um, and we recognize that if God can speak this way to Unix in the, in the 6th century BC, he will also speak this way to every marginalized person. Because think, think what it must have been like to be a eunuch in the ancient world. Um, I've never heard of there being eunuchs in the modern world, um, but the ancient world was actually full of them. Uh, pretty much every king's court in the ancient Near East, apart from Israel, was staffed by eunuchs. There was, they were the servants, and the, they were the attendants and the officials of the king's court. And they were made eunuchs for the sake of complete loyalty and obedience. To the king right so um eunuchs were men who had been forced into a lifelong slavery to a master who had physically mutilated them and that mutilation was an indelible mark of possession it said you will never be your own man again you will always belong to me the normal respectable life of a husband and father is forever taken from you you are a shameful creature now your name is cut off and you and from now on you're going to serve my name only that was their status in society. And we can well imagine that a eunuch would come to the point of saying the words of verse three, behold, I am a dry tree. Can you imagine how helpless and hopeless you would feel in their position? They would say, in other words, like, what good can I do now? What good can I be in the world now? Because a tree is supposed to bear fruit. That's its purpose. And a dry tree is just dead and fruitless and worthless. So I wonder if there are any reasons that we ourselves have had uh, cause to be tempted to say in our own words, behold, I'm a dry tree. Maybe we say it because we can't have children or we couldn't get married for whatever reason, or we were so weighed down by bodily weakness or tiredness that we didn't feel that we could be any much use in the world, or all our plans came to nothing, or all the fruit of them was stolen. We just might have a lot of reasons for saying, behold, I'm a dry tree. But God tells the eunuch he mustn't say that, um, even though for, in his case, it was because he just didn't have a life of his own. He had no wife, no children, no name or any hope of getting one. How precious is God's promise to him when God says, I will give you a monument and a name better than sons and daughters. So what this is, is it's a promise to give eunuchs back the sense of identity that was taken away from them and to give them a better legacy than children would ever give. Because God says it's going to be a name that's within his own house and within his own walls. Right. So think about that temple exclusive system. Who could even get within God's house and his own walls? But these eunuchs are going to be honored uh, right there in the heart of things, not in the in the outskirts, not outside the periphery, but right in the heart um, of God's own house, a reputation among the great. God also says it's going to be an everlasting name that shall not be cut off. So to those who physically had their chance of a name cut off, God promises that's never going to happen with him. And these promises go straight to the heart of a eunuch's pain. And the language in, in verse 5 even suggests that there's more to come because the phrase that we find in there, a monument and a name, is a very rich phrase. So in Hebrew, you might know this, um, the phrase a monument and a name is Yad Vashem. I will give you a monument and a name. And you might know that Yad Vashem is the name of the Israeli Holocaust Museum in Jerusalem. It's the World 
Holocaust Remembrance Center. It's called Yad Vashem. And the museum is named after this verse in Isaiah 56. I will give you a monument and a name. Of course, they were thinking of all of the six million dead Jewish people in the Holocaust um, and them receiving a monument and a name. And it's fascinating that the Jewish people in Israel took this verse, which applies to eunuchs in Isaiah 56, to foreigners, to strangers, and it applies it to the children of Israel, the persecuted children of Israel. So we went to this museum when I visited Israel and my Israeli tour guide, who's a native Hebrew speaker, explained kind of the, the, the sense, the meaning behind the name. Uh, she explained that Yad in Hebrew can mean monument, uh, but most of the time it means hand. It's the Hebrew word for hand. Um, so the promise in Isaiah 56 could be translated, I will give you a hand and a name. And then uh, she stood there in the front of the bus and asked us, who is it in society who gives somebody else a hand and a name? And we thought about it for a while and then we answered, a bridegroom, right? So he gives his beloved his hand in marriage and then in the marriage ceremony, he gives her his name as well. Um, and my tour guide nodded and that was kind of exactly what she was going for. And if she was right to read the text this way, then perhaps within this promise to eunuchs who would obviously never marry is actually the hint of a proposal of marriage to, from God himself saying, I will give you a hand and a name. It's very beautiful. God says that he's going to honor the people who honor him. So that's the first thing I want to notice in Isaiah 56 is that the outsiders, the eunuchs, and then also by extension, the foreigners are remembered by God. They're honored by him. They don't ever have to fear being separated off from his people, God says. But there's a second part of this. There's a very important corollary. Um, and that's that these same foreigners and eunuchs are also people who honor God, right? And that's also very clear in the passage. They're people who seek the glory of his name. Um, so God speaks to three groups of people in this passage in Isaiah 56. First of all, he speaks to Israel. Then he speaks to the eunuchs. And then he speaks to the foreigners. And we hear God saying essentially the same thing to each of those three groups. So first in verse one, God tells Israel, keep justice and do righteousness for soon my salvation will come and my righteousness be revealed. Blessed is the man who does this and the son of man who holds it fast, who keeps the Sabbath, not profaning it, and keeps his hand from doing any evil. All right, so <clears throat> God's calling his people. He's really calling them to holiness, right? He's saying, my salvation's coming, and so uh, the priority of holiness is more important than ever. Get ready, get, get your hearts ready for the coming of the Lord. And he specifically mentions keep the Sabbath. Um, and I think Sabbath keeping was just a key mark of Old Testament holiness to the Lord because nobody in the other nations kept the Sabbath. Nobody would think to do such a costly thing as keep the Sabbath unless they were setting themselves apart for the Lord in obedience to his word. All right. So then second in verse four, God addresses the eunuchs and he uses very, very similar words to them too. He says to the eunuchs who keep my Sabbaths, who choose the things that please me and hold fast to my covenant. There's a lot of language overlap in what God says. Um, so God says that eunuchs are going to be welcomed too, but not just by virtue of being eunuchs, right? They're not welcome just because they're excluded. They were welcomed um, by virtue of having a heart that wants to please God and a will to hold fast to his covenant. So there's, there's a choice that the eunuchs have made first, and God is honoring them for honoring him. 
And then in verse 6, exactly the same language is applied a third time, and this time it's to the foreigners. <clears throat> and God says, And the foreigners who join themselves to the Lord to minister to him, to love the name of the Lord and to be his servants, everyone who keeps the Sabbath and does not profane it and hold fast to my covenant. You see that same language coming up again when we talk about the foreigners. So... <clears throat> The promise to all three groups is there at the end. These I will bring to my holy mountain and make them joyful in my house of prayer. Their burnt offerings and their sacrifices will be accepted on my altar. For my house shall be called a house of prayer for all peoples. Okay, so what I understand this to mean is, as Jesus said, the Father is seeking worshippers who will worship him in spirit and truth. And if we will do that, if anyone will do that, if we will come and approach him in the way that he has shown us, then no one is going to be turned away. And it doesn't matter what we've done in the past or where we come from. It doesn't matter what kind of shame we carry. If we will give ourselves to God, if we will de devote our lives to his honor and his name, then he will remember us and honor us in return and give to each of us an everlasting name. Now, some of what makes us feel ashamed is real, is really shameful. And those things God will heal. And some of us, what makes us ashamed is not actually shameful. We've just been made to feel ashamed by a fallen world. And those things God will comfort. But nothing that makes us feel ashamed is disqualifying. None of it means that God will reject us if we come to him. That's the promise of Isaiah 56, which, of course, is filled out in much more glorious detail in the New Testament. Isaiah was looking ahead to the future when he wrote these words, 600 years before Jesus came, and Jesus brought those words to pass. At the moment he died on the cross and the Father tore the curtain in the temple in two, from top to bottom. That was the moment that God's house truly became a house of prayer for all nations. And since Jesus's blood pays for all of us, now anyone in the world can be holy. Anyone can be a saint. And indeed, anyone can be a great saint because it doesn't depend on who we are or where we came from. It depends on Jesus and his work in us. And it depends on how much we love and accept and embrace and want that work in us. All right, so I have three brief applications that I want to draw out of this. Uh, the first is to anyone who feels like an outsider, uh, the second to anyone who feels like an insider, and then there's the third for all of us as we take on the role of evangelists. <clears throat> so first for the outsiders. For anyone who feels in some way stuck outside the temple walls, you might be quite near to the action, but not very near. Um, and I don't know what it is that keeps you out there. Maybe, maybe it's your own choice. Maybe you just don't want to come any closer. Uh, close enough, but not too close. Uh, or maybe it's not your choice. Uh, maybe you feel like you're held outside at a distance by others for any of the reasons that I mentioned earlier. Your past or your pedigree or ethnicity or gender or sexuality or for evil that you've done or for evil that's been done to you or for whatever fact about yourself that you feel is in some way disqualifying. I want to tell you on the authority of God's word that it is not disqualifying. And God's heart is to gather you in, just as he gathered the lost sheep of Israel. You too are invited further up and further in. 
you're invited by God to the greatest life imaginable, to be a saint, and even a great saint. And God himself has removed every barrier that might prevent you from coming and nailed those to the cross of Jesus. So all that remains is the question of will you come? Do you want this new life in God? Because if you do, then nothing's going to prevent you from having it. The second word is to the insiders and to those who feel confident in our status as sons and daughters of God. And scripture says we should feel a sense of confidence if we believe in the name of Jesus and put our trust. But it also says, take care and let he who thinks he stands take heed lest he fall. Because if our confidence is in anything other than in the sheer mercy of God to us, then it is a false confidence. And Jesus warns in his word that plenty of people who are full of false confidence will come to him on the last day and hear the dreadful words, I never knew you. And they will say, I prophesied in your name and I worked miracles in your name and I preached in your name and I wrote books in your name and I wore all the right slogans and I held all the right opinions. And Jesus will say, I never knew you. Because we have placed our confidence in our own status as insiders, which is just what the Pharisees did, and not in the mercy of God. And we forgot to hold fast to his covenant and chase after holiness. So the word to outsiders is take heart, and the word to insiders is take care. And now for all of us, as we take on the work of evangelists and bring the gospel of Jesus to people who haven't understood it, will we remember as we meet people, we're always talking to potential saints. Maybe that sounds obvious, but maybe it's easy to forget that this person in front of me who's in prison or who bears terrible scars of suffering or who doesn't speak English very well or who's stuck in addiction or wherever it is we find them, this person, they still have all the necessary raw material to become a very great saint, maybe to far eclipse our own love for Jesus and zeal for his name and to become the kind of hero that books are written about. All they need is Jesus and a heart set on fire for him, an endless transformation is possible. So will we speak to them, not only to challenge them to repent, but also to invite them to a life of glory? Will we make that part of our message and speak it with honesty and hopefulness? All right, so those are my three applications. And as we go into our breakout groups now, I just want to ask simply, what struck you this morning about Isaiah 56, the passage that Sarah talked about and I talked about, and it's fine if you want to talk a lot more about what Sarah said. Um, so what struck you from Isaiah 56? And then secondly, if you've got a comfortable group and you feel safe, uh, how do these verses speak to your own heart?